Let's turn to the uh, third chapter of Genesis. Last week, Steve showed us how Satan sowed seeds of distrust and uh, deceived the woman. His, uh, his attack was to undermine her confidence that God really had her welfare in mind. He said to her, Is it really true that God doesn't want you to eat from every tree? Uh, really now, is it true that, that God doesn't give you the freedom to expand your mind and to fulfill yourself in every possible way? Don't you know that God is just trying to suppress you and, and make you irrelevant and uh, keep you from being what you know you, you want to be? That was Satan's attack. And that's Satan's attack today. That's still the, the uh, approach that the deceiver takes to get us to, to distrust God, to believe that he really does not have our welfare in mind. When God says to us that uh, leadership is measured by servanthood, uh, both Jesus and the apostles make it very clear that, that leaders are servants. We must not... Uh, measure our leadership by the number of people that work for us or under us, but the number of people we serve. And that's truth. But Satan says, oh, come on now. You can't run a business that way. You can't lead your family that way. You have to assert yourself. You have to demand your rights. You have to insist on what is legitimately yours. People will push you around, and, you, and you'll never be fulfilled if you're a servant. That's just... Uh, that's weakness. Or when Scripture says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, because they'll be satisfied. And the tempter says, That's nonsense. You'll just become a religious fuddy-duddy, and you'll get out of the mainstream of life, and you'll just be totally irrelevant and out of it. And we start believing Him. And He undermines our confidence in what God has said and and we, we believe the lie. We follow his instructions, and the result is always death, as the Scriptures tell us. The payoff for sin is death. It may not be immediate, but it's a death-like state that sets in. Boredom and frustration and emptiness in our life, and resentment and bitterness and coldness and indifference to human need. Uh, some of you may have seen the quote in the, the uh, Parade magazine last Sunday from a, an Arab uh, chieftain uh, prince in Spain just uh, during the first Muslim period, about 900 A.D. He said, I have now reigned about 50 years in victory or peace. Riches, honor, power, and pleasure have wanted on my call. Nor does any earthly blessing appear to have been wanting to my felicity. In this situation, I have diligently numbered the days of pure and genuine happiness which have fallen to my lot. They amount to 14. Out of 50 days or 50 years of rule, he found 14 days when he was genuinely happy. And uh, a lot of us can echo that sentiment. We've tried to do it our way. And we've discovered that, that the harvest is a great deal of unhappiness and dissatisfaction and heartache. But when we do things God's way, the result is, is peace and joy and fulfillment. And we need to believe God and not the tempter. That's, that's the lesson that we get from, from chapter 3. 
Now I'd like to begin reading in verse 6 of Genesis 3. This will overlap a bit with Steve's message last week, but we need to sort of get a running start on verses 8 through uh, the end of the chapter. So we'll begin with verse 6. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. Then Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Our human attempts to set things right are always sort of pathetic. The thing that struck me about this passage, uh, again, is that it was the man who caused the fall, not the woman. That's very clear. The uh, woman ate, and she gave to the man, and then we're told, then the eyes of them both were open. Mankind did not fall until the man ate. Now, the woman's received a lot of bad press. Uh, she's uh, often blamed for the fall, but she's not responsible. Paul does tell us she became a sinner, but she is not responsible for the fall of the race. That was Adam's uh, responsibility. He caused that. Now, what Adam should have done is to go to Eve, or when she came to him with the fruit, he should have said, Now, look, hon, you've disobeyed God. Satan deceived you. And I don't know how he's going to set this all right, but he's got a way to to fix it up. He'll set things right. But we have to do what's right. Now, I want you to go put that thing back up. Wire it on the tree if you have to, but put it back up. And then he should have found the snake and said, Look, snake, if you ever mess with my woman again, I'm going to put a fork knot on your head. And that would have been the end of it, I believe. But Adam didn't do it. He didn't do it. He capitulated to his woman. And so do we. So do we, men. You know, one of the most difficult things is to work out God's will in a husband and wife relationship because the pull toward our spouse is so strong. And very often there are times that we have to please God, and in order to please God, we have to be very displeasing to our wives. And there are very few men who enjoy that. We just don't like to face into that sort of thing. It's just fear. Our philosophy is peace at all costs. We don't like to ruffle things around the house. We don't like to see people get disturbed. But James says that uh, the policy under which we operate is not peace at all costs, but purity at all costs. The wisdom that is from above, James says, is first pure and then peaceable. Purity comes first. Now, this means that we need to please God and not our wives. This means that we need to please God and not ourselves, regardless of what it costs us. Our tendencies are threefold, I think. One is to capitulate. We all have round heels, and we roll over backwards very easily when uh, faced with the possibility of displeasing someone in our family. Or we overreact, and we try to dominate. I hear myself periodically uh, launch into a tirade. 
about how we're going to do things in our house, and I throw in a few scripture references because that sanctifies the whole thing. And my family sits there awe-stricken for a time, and when I'm through, Carolyn suggests that we pass the offering plate or something. <laughs> or on the rare occasions when I do it right, uh, afterwards a strange thing happens. I, I feel guilty, and I feel like I ought to apologize. It's really tough, man. I've, I've discovered one of the most difficult things about, about my relationship with the Lord is to be firm and to be kind and to do what God has called me to do regardless of what pressure I may be experiencing from my family. But that's what God has called us to be. It was Adam, you'll note, who was called on the carpet here. He's the responsible agent. He's the one that God goes seeking. He's responsible for the spiritual leadership of his home. He's responsible for keeping the snake out of his house, for setting the example, for being the pace setter spiritually, and for correcting things when they're misaligned from Scripture. That's very clear from these verses, six and, verses 6 and 7. Now let's look at verse 8. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid themselves from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, Who told you you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, The woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree, and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, Who is this, or what is this you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. So they're passing the buck. They're refusing to face the facts. And that's what man has done ever since the fall. We duck and hide and bob and weave, and we hide physically and we hide verbally and and we try to defend ourselves and protect ourselves, but we really know we have no defense against God's scrutiny. God knows. God, God knew where Adam was. He, he didn't ask for his sake. He asked for Adam's sake. Adam needed to know that he was out of relationship with God. Something had gone wrong. And so God, as a father, goes seeking him. He does what we do, what we fathers do when we're told that, there's, that something has happened during the day and our children have been uh, unruly or disobedient. And we go out seeking them. We say, son, where are you? And there has to be discipline, but it's a father who goes looking. And this was a father seeking a son. Adam, where are you? And Adam's hiding. Hides himself physically because uh, he's naked. He hides behind a bush or a tree because he... He doesn't want to be out in the open, and then he begins to hide verbally because he's not willing to admit. Franz Dalys' marvelous old, old Testament theologian said they should have smitten their, their breasts and cried out, Father, forgive me. But they couldn't do that. So they hid, and men have been hiding ever since. You know, so, you know that's why people get upset when you explain the gospel to them. They're upset because they don't want God to find them out. Uh, Dennis Linskag and I were talking to a couple just uh, a couple of weeks ago. And his wife was saying, the problem with my husband is he's too good. He's a hardworking man. He's honest. He's loyal. He's faithful to the family. And he's too good. And that's why he, he isn't a Christian. 
And I said, well, uh, the problem, I suppose, is being good enough. That's all I said. And it just enraged him. He jumped to his feet and walked out of the room and went into another part of the house and sort of composed himself and came back. But you see, it wasn't my words. It was his knowledge. He knew that, that before God he was guilty. He couldn't be good enough. None of us can. So we hide. We don't want God to confront us with the truth. We don't realize that though God is a disciplinarian, He's just. He has to be just or he's not God, but he's still a father, still reaching out. But instead of confessing their sin, they blame someone else. The man blames the woman. The wo As a matter of fact, he indirectly blames God. The woman you put here with me. You did it to me, God. Don't suppose we've ever done that. And she blames the serpent, and the serpent doesn't have anyone to blame. And so the curse falls on him. So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all the livestock and all the wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. Now, I don't think this, the serpent originally had legs and he now has a new mode of existence. I, I think that from this point on, his, his method of locomotion became symbolic. He probably crawled on his belly from the very beginning, but now it has a special, a special meaning. The point is, for the rest of your life, Satan, you're going to bite the dust. You're going to experience defeat. Frustration and defeat will be your lot. He's like one of these villains in these Western melodramas, you know, where he, he, he captures Penelope. And he takes her away and ties her to the railroad track. And the hero enters with a white hat. And he saves pretty Penelope and carries her away. And the, and the villain goes off stage muttering curses, foiled again. That's Satan. We talked about this two weeks ago. You know, he's not the formidable foe that, that he often, as he's often depicted. He is subject to God. He's already been defeated. He's cursed here in the garden. We're told at the very beginning, you'll crawl on your belly like a snake. You'll eat the dust all of your life. And it's interesting, when Isaiah depicts the new heavens and the new earth, he talks about, you know, the lion lying down with the lamb, and, and they'll eat straw like an ox. But he says the serpent will crawl on his belly. Nothing will ever be changed about the serpent. He's doomed to death and frustration. And then we're told, I'll put enmity between you and the woman. Here's a statement of the hostility that will persist between the seed of the woman, that is mankind, and the seed of the serpent, Satan and all of his uh, demons and, and all of those uh, who have bought his philosophy. There will be, there'll be conflict so we can expect life to be difficult at times. It's not realistic to believe that everything will be peaceful and comfortable and quiet and pleasant. We're sometimes shocked when these things happen to us. But Peter says, don't be surprised when evil times overhaul you because you're in a battle. We're in a conflict. But the outcome of that conflict is, is sure. It's certain. It's like reading the end of the book before you read the book. You know what the end will be, so you don't get worried about what's happening in root. He tells us that he, 
that is, the offspring of the woman, the seed of the woman, will crush the serpent's head, and you will strike his heel. In other words, the serpent will inflict a painful wound on the man, but the man will inflict a mortal wound on the serpent. Now, he's talking about the one who is to come. And we know from the New Testament that ultimately it's the Lord Jesus who was struck on the heel. Satan did wound him in the cross, but he didn't inflict a mortal wound on him. He rose again, and it was Jesus who stamped on the head of the serpent and crushed him underfoot. So here in the very outset, you see, where trouble enters the world, we're told there's hope that God is going to keep the serpent in his place and ultimately he's going to deal a death blow to him. So there's hope. No matter how dark things become, how vigorous the conflict, there's hope. Things are under control. Now in verse 16, he says to the woman, and you'll notice he does not say, because you did this. He says that of the serpent in verse 14, and he says that to Adam in verse 17, because they are directly responsible. But he does not say to the woman, because you did this, so-and-so will happen. She's almost an innocent bystander. She sinned, but she's not ultimately responsible for the fall of the race. To the woman, he said, I will greatly increase your pains in childbearing. With pain, you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. Now, the consequences for the woman are twofold. The first is pain in child rearing, and the second is an ambiguous relationship to her husband. Now, this is a remarkable chapter because in this chapter, we're told the root causes of every sort of disturbance in the home. I don't care what's gone wrong with your home. At the bottom of it is one of the things that's, that's mentioned in, in the book of Genesis in this passage. It's stated very deftly and very subtly, but... But the message is there if we'll listen to it. Now, the first thing he says is that there will be pain in child rearing. He's not really talking here about the pain of conception, but the pain of raising children. As I've said before, children are just a pain to raise. We all know it. Sometimes parents are a pain, too, so I understand that. I've been both. But uh, by and large, children are very difficult to raise because, you see, they come, into the, into the, and they come into the human race as fallen beings. We expect them to do something contributive, something positive and helpful, and we find that they're just a part of the problem. They're like everybody else. They're fallen and sinful and self-centered and rebellious and disobedient, and they'll go their own way given the, the proper opportunity. And it's women who feel that most keenly. Who is it that goes to the teacher's meetings. By and large, women. Men are out slaying dragons. They don't have time to go. But it's the mother who goes and talks to the teacher. Who is it that gets worried? Who wakes up in the middle of the night, wakes you up, and says, what's happening to our kids? I, say, I don't know. I guess they're asleep. <laughs> no, no, no. I mean, why are they doing this? And we need to be doing this or that or the other. And you see, they feel it most keenly. They understand. Men tend to, uh, as a result of the fall, go off and leave the child raising, particularly in the younger years, to the children while they go out and make a living for the family. And you see, that's what they do is unload on their wife the terrible responsibility of caring for these children. And because of the fall, it's these women who feel it most keenly. It hurts. But you see, grace overturns this. 
That's the great thing about the gospel. We're not left in this condition. Grace overturns it. What grace does for the woman, for the mother, is to show her that, that ultimately God is the one who is responsible for raising her children, and she can entrust her children to God. You know, the parents uh, of the generation of the children that went into the land that conquered it when the nation of Israel was in the, in the wilderness... The reason they didn't go into Canaan is because they were afraid for their children. They said, our children will die. And their unbelief caused them to perish in the wilderness, the parents. The parents wouldn't go in for fear of what would happen to the children. The irony is the children got in. The parents didn't. God took care of their children. So ultimately, as mothers, your trust has to be in God and His ability to work through your life and your, parent, and your husband's life and others' lives to shape these children. And then grace says something to men, too. And we need to lift from our wives' shoulders this responsibility. It is our responsibility, ultimately, to train these children, to prepare them for life, to equip them for all that God has for them. And that starts early. You ever walked home, men, walked in your front door and, and you sort of get that feeling that something's not going well and you look around the house and there are blocks and junk strewn all over the place. Over in the corner, little Mortimer's pounding on his sister's head with a Lincoln log. And you see your wife standing at the stove. She's got a skillet in one hand, a spatula in the other, and you notice she's kind of dragging one leg and when you look to see what's wrong, there's Hortense wrapped around her leg. And he has wet diapers, and they're falling off, and, and it's the end of the day, and your wife has just had it. I can see that many of you have been there on both ends of that, of that thing. Well, man, that's our opportunity to move in and lovingly take those children off our, our wives' hands and feet and take them in another part of the house and diaper them and play with them to spend time with them, give her time by herself, and then to bathe the kids and get them in bed and, and just lift that load off of her back. You know, it, it really, I think as men, as, as our kids get older, men get excited about teaching them how to hunt and fish and do all those things, but that's almost too late. You need to begin when they're very small and care for those children when they're infants and help your wife in this way and support her and encourage her in this heavy task of raising children. It's true all through their life. It's our responsibility. Grace teaches us that. The second result of the fall for the woman, we're told, is that her desire will be for her husband and he will rule over her. If you look across the page, at least it's across the page in my Bible, in chapter 4, verse 7, we're told that uh, the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must master it. You know the story. Cain got angry with his brother and his face fell. He got depressed. And God says, If sin is like a lion, like a wild beast crouching at your door, and its desire is for you, it wants to captivate, capture you. But you must master it. Now, the same two terms that are used here in verse 7 in chapter 4 are the words that are used in chapter 3, verse 16. Your desire will be for your husband, 
and he will rule over you. And in two lines, God states for us the fundamental problem in many marriages. The problem with fallen woman is that she wants to possess her husband. I don't know how else to say it. Those are just the facts. Her whole life tends to center around her husband. You know, men are, can live lives that are very, uh, uh, very much divided. They can do a lot of things. They can get involved in, in their business, their vocation. They can be involved in some kind of uh, recreational thing. They can be involved in some academic situation or, or any number of things. They can pour their life into and they find a measure of satisfaction in doing those things, but not so for the woman. The fundamental relationship in her life is her relationship to her husband. And apart from the grace of, of our Lord Jesus Christ, she will tend to smother him and control him. That's why, men, your wives get upset when you go hunting on Saturday and Sunday. Or when you're not around as much as they think you ought to be. If you ever wondered why, that's why. Because they really want to possess you wholly. And the problem of the man is that he tends to counteract it by dominating, by tyrannizing. See, this is his problem. Your desire will be for him. He will rule over you. And this is a very strong Hebrew term. It means to, to dominate. So men get mad. When their wives get a little bit possessive, they get angry. It frustrates them. And they, they may get quiet and withdraw. Men react in various ways. Or they start storming around, demanding their rights. And they slam the door and go off to the bar or whatever just to get out of the house. That's what sin has done to us. But again, you see, grace overrules. When the Lord Jesus comes into our life, He becomes the center of our life. And He becomes the one who satisfies you as, as, a, as a wife, who meets your needs even though your husband can't. Carolyn has said so often, men will always disappoint you. Try Jesus. And I think I know why she always says that. Because we will, as men, disappoint our wives. We won't come through. We won't be what we ought to be. But if we really understand the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, then He, he fills that missing ingredient in our life. He satisfies us fully. And what grace does for the man is that it teaches him to love his wife as Christ loved the church. You see, that's really what she wants. She wants to be loved. She wants to know that she's secure. The worst thing you can do to your wife is to undermine that feeling of security, to deride her, to ridicule her, to point out weaknesses in her physically or emotionally or, or spiritually or the way she cleans house or anything else and just give her the gears at that point. It just strips every bit of self-worth away from her. And apart from the grace of God, she has nothing to stand on. You know, all the way through the New Testament... Uh, you, can read, you, you can read all the way through the New Testament. You'll never find a statement there uh, commanding women to love their husbands. It's true. Titus says that the older women are to teach the younger women how to love their husbands. But women will naturally respond to their husbands. Men have to be commanded to love their husbands or love their wives. <laughs> husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. As I said in Howard and Karis' wedding yesterday, Scripture teaches that women are to, to give in to their husbands, but men are to give up, 
themselves, to their wives. And that means just doing the little practical things that indicate that we really love them, we really care for them, we really appreciate what they're doing. And I'm not going to tell you how to do that. We need to be creative and, and to really think through how we can demonstrate our love to our wives in very practical ways. First off, I'd suggest telling her that fairly regularly. Like the fellow who uh, was asked if he ever told his wife he loved her, and he said, yeah. He says, I told her when I married her, and she knows good and well I never changed my mind about anything. <laughs> but that's not enough. We need to tell them. We need to show them in creative ways that they're very, very important to us. Now, in verse 17... We're given the results of the fall for the man. To Adam, he said, because you listened to your wife and ate from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat of it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken. For dust you are, and to dust you will return. The woman has a twofold curse. The pain of child-rearing and the ambiguity of her relationship to her husband. The man, likewise, has a twofold curse. The ground is cursed. Notice he is not. The ground is. And death. And those are the two things that, that frustrate us the most. You know, when we're young men and we, when we venture out on our vocation, we are always very excited about it, enthusiastic, and we, we give it our very best. But the older you get, the more disillusioned you become about your vocation. It just doesn't pay off. It gets frustrating. It never satisfies. I don't care how hard you work at it, how many hours you put into it. It never satisfies. This is why men become workaholics. This is why men bring a, a satchel full of work home at night. This is why they pour their whole life into their vocation because they think some way if they just work hard enough, it's going to pay off. And it never does. It never does. I don't care what, what sort of vocation you're in. You know, regularly, about every four or five years, I decide that I ought to do something else. And you probably are the same way. It doesn't make any difference what you're doing. There always seems to be a better way to do something. The grass is always greener on the other side, but you still got to cut it when you get over there. And, and you begin to discover that. Nothing satisfies. This, is, this explains a so-called midlife crisis. Man gets to a certain point in his life and he's been thinking all along, I'm going to get to the top of the heap, I'm going to be a corporation president or I'm going to have the best farm in this area or whatever. And he achieves it and it means nothing. That's what uh, someone called destination sickness. You've arrived. You have everything you want and you don't want anything you have. And we all know people like that. Or maybe you didn't arrive. Maybe you see you're 45 and it suddenly dawns on you you're never going to be what you thought you were going to be. You're never going to make as much money as you thought you were going to make. And you get frustrated. And so you think, well, an affair is, will liven things up. And so you leave your wife and you form another relationship. And men go from one relationship to another trying to find what they're looking for and they'll never find it. Because the ground is cursed, men. Your vocation will never satisfy you. That's why God says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. If we give ourselves to knowing God, 
and displaying his character, then we'll be satisfied whether we achieve in our business or not. I'm not against hard work. I think as men we ought to work hard and we ought to be the best that we can be. But I think we need to be realistic. We'll never be satisfied by our vocation. Only God satisfies. Sooner or later, we have to come to the place that we say, Lord, here's my life. Do with me as you please. I want to be an instrument to accomplish your, your purposes in the world and not my own. And that's when life begins to be fulfilling. The next result of the fall for the man is death. And there's nothing quite as frustrating as death. Uh, the death rate from the very beginning has been almost 100%. And uh, I saw there's a story in the Reader's Digest a couple of months ago about uh, the people in the Kremlin wanting to get rid of the uh, body of Stalin. And they didn't know where to put it. They just wanted to get it out of, uh, out of uh, Russia. And so they inquired around and finally discovered that they could take it to Israel but uh, Menachem Begin said, the only problem is we have the highest resurrection rate in the world here. <laughs> but, uh, you know, in general, all of us are going to face death, taxes and death. It's inevitable. And it's frustrating to us. Have you ever thought, sort of an interesting exercise that occurred to me one time, that we spend an awful lot of time in our preoccupation with death. Just think of the enormous expenditure of money and time that, that we invest be simply because death is around. Our whole defense budget, for one, the cosmetics industry is another, and on and on it goes. You know, and I, I suspect 75% of our time and money and, and energy are, are invested in trying to stave off death in some form or another, but it finally gets us. We live as though we're immortal, but we're not. I think that's why we wear watches and we keep clocks and calendars and things, because we somehow sense that time is short. And we're not going to live forever. But uh, God says to Adam, you're going to return to the dust. Every time Adam turned over a spade of dirt, from that point on, it just reminded him that he was dust. He came from dirt. That was his origin and that was his destiny. And that's why he was driven from the, or the story of his being driven, banished from the garden, makes it even more... Uh, even more clear in verse 22. And the Lord God said, The man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. So the Lord God banished him from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. After he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming, flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard their way to the tree of life. Adam had been eating of the tree of life all along. As far as I can tell from reading the passage, God didn't even tell him it was a tree of life. It was just one of the trees of the garden, and he was eating it, and he would have been immortal. He would have lived forever. But now he's banished. Because it would be a terrible thing for a fallen man to live forever. On one side of the question, death is a gracious thing. Think what it would be like if people like uh, the Borges and, and Jimmy Jones and Hitler and people like that were still alive. How awful the world would be. So in one sense, death is a provision of grace. Fallen man can't live forever. Something has to change. So death is introduced into the, into the picture. Uh, as some of you know, I spent a year reading a lot of Near Eastern literature, and the thing that struck me about reading this material is, that, uh, is how preoccupied they were with the theme of death and immortality. It's very real. One of the most famous stories from the Near East is called the Gilgamesh Epic, and it's a story about this fellow who has a friend, Enkidu, 
uh, who dies. And he's just overwhelmed by this man's death. It's the first death that he's seen. And so he goes out searching for immortality. And he goes here and there, and he tries various schemes. And finally, he meets uh, the, their Noah, the hero of the Noah story in Babylonian history. He's called Ipnapishtim. And uh, he, asks, he, he, he discovers that immortality has been conferred on him by the gods. And so he asks him how he received it. So he tells him about a sacred plant that he's to eat. So he goes off and gets the plant, and he's carrying it home, and he sees a pool of water, and he stops to look into the water to admire his face, and a snake comes along and eats up the plant. Isn't that interesting? It's distorted, but apparently source, you know, the source is the same, that the snake robbed him of immortality. So he dies. But before he dies, he builds a city because that's the best he can do. He can leave his name behind through some great work. So nothing ever changes. And then there's another story of, in Canaanite literature about a cot, marvelous hero in Canaanite literature, who has this bow that nobody can pull. This macho theme is found very frequently in their literature. Nobody can pull it except, uh, except a cot, a composite bow made out of the sinew of bull's horns. And uh, this uh, goddess, a knot, wants his bow. And he says, no way. Besides, you're a girl and you can't pull it. That makes her mad. And, uh, and he, she says, if you give me that bow, I'll confer immortality on you. You'll, you'll be like Baal. You'll live forever. And he says, oh, no, no, no. And he says, they'll pour hoariness on my head. Whiteness will come on my pate because that's what they did when they buried them. They poured a sort of a plaster-like surface over the top of their head. And I shall die the death of all men. Yea, dying, I shall die. And he uses exactly the same terminology that you find in, in Genesis uh, 2. When God tells the man, if you eat the plant, you'll surely die. It's exactly the same terminology. The Canaanite language is essentially the Hebrew language. They knew, see. They were faced with death. But again, grace overrules. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And whosoever lives and believes in me shall never really die. Death is just a change of location. That's all. Not, not a cessation to our existence. Now, there is in this passage what I think is a very delicate touch, something we need to hear. In verse 21, The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. Just that one line. He slew an animal. Some, something, uh, some animal had to give up its life for Adam and Eve. And he made uh, a little leather-like shirt for Adam and Eve. That's the meaning of the term. And he sent them out into the, the cold, hard world, clothed. He made provision for them. The Jews always said that the, that the first five books of the Bible... The Torah, begin with the love of God and end with the love of God. The last story in Deuteronomy is that of, of Moses' burial and the Lord's very tender treatment of Moses as he put as his body was, was hidden away in the earth. And here in the beginning of the story of man is another indication of God's love. He cares for us. I heard about a little girl who came into her father's office one day and he was trying to get some things done, and she was puttering around in his office, bothering him. And, and uh, he told her to put some things back in the drawer, and she shoved the drawer shut and pinched her finger, and she let out this great big wail, and it made him mad. And he kind of gave her a little whack on the seat and told her to get out and stop bothering him. And 
He went into the other, she went into the other part of the house and she cried and cried. And her mother came over and, and put her arm around her and said, Does your finger hurt? And he, she said, No, no, it's not that my finger hurts. It's that my daddy didn't say, Oh. And you see, that's what we need to know. <laughs> we need to know that God cares. He cares. Most of the religions and cults in the world today are, are designed to try to get God to care and to notice. If we do enough, if we go to enough meetings, if we do the right things, then God will care. But what we need to see at the very beginning is that God cares. He cares about your home. He cares about your relationship with your children. And when you hurt, He says, Oh, it means something to Him. He's a father who cares. And you'll notice that Adam did a very simple thing. Verse 21, verse 20, Adam named his wife Eve because she would become the mother of all living. Just that one statement indicates the, the change in Adam from the moment of his rebellion to this point. God had said that Eve would, uh, would have an offspring and that offspring would trample on the head of the serpent. Just that one statement. And Adam took God at his word. He believed God. He trusted Him. That she would produce an offspring. And so he called her the mother of all living. He went from rebellion to trust in that moment. And so can you. And so can I. The thing that gets us off the track in our homes is that we don't do things God's way. We think we know better. We eat of the tree instead of letting God reveal the truth to us. We distrust Him. But when we start trusting Him and believing Him, things begin to happen. He cares. Have you ever taken that step initially? If, if you haven't, this may be the time to do it. To take a step from rebellion against God and doing things your way to doing it His way. That's what repentance is. Repentance, the word repentance has nothing to do with, with emotions. It simply means to change your mind. That's what conversion is. It's changing your mind about the way you've been living your life and deciding you're going to do it God's way. You're going to submit to Him and to the Lord Jesus Christ and let Him begin to, to work in your life and in your family and in your relationship with your children and with your parents. And you can do that here. Or maybe you've already taken that step, but in some small areas of, of your life you're still rebelling. This may be the time to set that straight as well. Let's pray, shall we? Lord Jesus, we thank you for, for providing what we need, for caring about us more than we could care about ourselves. We recognize that, that you know everything that goes on in our home and everything that happens in our hearts. Nothing is hidden from you. We may try to hide and cover up from others, but you know who we are and how desperately we need you. And we thank you that you're available to us. We ask you to come into our life, Father, and, and make us the kind of people that we want to be. And we thank you that once you're there, you set things right. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.